Oh, good morning. That's a, uh, a really good song. And um, <clears throat> it's easy to sing, uh, It is well with my soul, when we're experiencing peace that flows like a river. But when, uh, when we experience, well, how does the words go? When sorrows like sea billows roll. In other words, when the sorrows of life crash over us one after the other. Or when Satan should buffet. Can we still sing that song, It Is Well With My Soul? That's the, that's the challenge of that song. It's easy to praise the Lord in happy days. Uh, so this semester, the theme of a number of the chapels is Heroes of the Faith. And uh, so I, apparently the student services have asked a number of the faculty to come share some stories of Heroes of the Faith. And uh, so that's what I'm going to do this morning. And uh, this song is such a good song to sing in light of that. When sorrows like sea billows roll, like when they come crashing over us, can, our, uh, can we trust the Lord to sustain us? So I'm going to tell a missionary story, uh, a story of missionary heroes, uh, a story of missionary martyrs. But it's not a story from the persecution of the early church. It's not a story about Roman Catholic opposition in the time of the Reformation. It's not a story about the, uh, the underground church in China or the Middle East. It's actually a current story. It's a recent story. It's the story of the martyrdom of my friends when we were in Panama for two years, back in 92 to 94. And, um, but before we do that, let's just ask the Lord to uh, guide us this morning. Father, we just thank you so much. Thank you for bringing us to Heritage. Thank you for this time in chapel together. Thank you for the gospel. And uh, Lord, may your spirit guide me as I share and, and help my throat to endure. And Lord, I ask you to bless these students and all of us who are gathered just to be challenged regarding our faith and, and your sufficiency. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So if you would turn to Acts chapter 12, I want to start with that. <clears throat> So the book of Acts is the story of the expansion of the church, and it starts with Jesus commissioning his disciples, and then Acts 2 is Pentecost, and the coming of the Holy Spirit, and then the next chapters are the apostles preaching the gospel, encountering opposition, but growing in faith and courage. Acts chapter 9 is a story of Saul's conversion. Actually, we see the, the gospel preached in Jerusalem to the Jews, then in Samaria, and then in Chapter 9, Saul's conversion, his confrontation with Christ, or by Christ. And in uh, Acts chapter 10, Peter goes to Cornelius' house, and so the Gentiles are hearing the gospel. But look at the last verse, uh, verse 11, or chapter 11. This they did, sending their gifts to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. So chapter 11 ends with this little comment about Barnabas and Saul being sent out. And then we have the chapter 12. But as you read, as we read this chapter, a good hermeneutical principle when you read any of the Gospels, the narrative stories, and the book of Acts, is to ask the question, what is this story about? And why does the writer, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Luke and Acts, why, why pick this story included, and included in the book? Okay, so I'm going to read this, the whole chapter, and you think, okay, what is this story all about? So let's read. I got the NIV here. 
It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. After arresting Peter, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains and sentries, stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Get up, he said. And the chains, they just fell off Peter's wrists. And the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. Peter did so, and wrap your cloak around, cloak around you, and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and the second guards, and they came to the iron gate leading to the city, and it opened for them by itself, and they walked through it. And when they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were anticipating. When this dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and the servant girl named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter's at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said it must be his angel. But Peter kept knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the brothers about this, he said, and then he left for another place. And in the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. And after Herod, Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there for a while. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. Having secured the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on, they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address up to the people. And they shouted, this is the voice of a god, not a man. And immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of the Lord continued to increase and spread. And when Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. So what is this story about? <clears throat> As we look at the story, we see there's a number of different um, elements that are somewhat contradictory or somewhat conflicting or in tension. So there's supernatural elements. Peter's, Peter's in chains, and all of a sudden, an angel appears. And then when he reacts, the, chain, the, the shackles that are bolted together on his wrist, they fall off. And then when they walk, through the, they walk by the guards, no one sees them, and they come to the iron gates, and they just open up. So these are, these are supernatural events, which are very unexpected and very unusual. They're supernatural. 
But there's also some natural events. So that here's this momentous moment, and the angel says, Peter, you can't go out like that. Like, put your clothes on. He's laying there, I guess, in his undergarments, and so he's got to wait while Peter gets his clothes on. And he says, okay, get your cloak too. Okay, don't forget your jacket. So he puts his cloak on. I think it's just not necessarily humorous, but it's just interesting that in all this exciting moment, here's this very plain moment where he's just got to put his, his clothes on. Then there's political, spiritual, and personal elements. So political, King Herod's in Jerusalem. He's concerned about stability, social unrest. So he starts arresting apostles, and he's recognizing that the people like it. So he's arresting apostles more so to keep the calm and to please the people for political purposes than for any necessarily religious ones. And then at the end, he goes to Tyre and Sidon, and the people don't like him, but they cheer him on. Why? They, they need his favor. So this is political maneuvering too, isn't it? And then there's uh, spiritual dynamics. And particularly in the story, we see the church gathering to pray. And we'll comment a little bit more about that in a moment. So they're gathered to pray. They're just really seeking the Lord. And then, of course, there's the personal elements, where this is Peter in prison. And he's concerned for his safety. The others are concerned for his well-being because he's their friend. Uh, the other apostles are concerned because Peter's the second one to be arrested. So, intro to missiology, principles. God is at work in global affairs and he's at work in my life. And we see that in this story where Herod is acting politically and it's, it's affecting individuals, even though they're not politically involved. Then there's elements of faith and doubt. Because the church is praying earnestly for his release and they're praying for, through the night and they really believe they're really asking the Lord to rescue him. But then there's the doubt, because when he's rescued, they don't believe it. And they think you're out of your mind. You must be seeing things. Which is an interesting tension, asking the Lord to answer a prayer, and then being surprised when the Lord actually does that. But then there's this issue of life and death. Is this a story of, of life, or is it a story of death? Of course, it's the story of Peter's rescue, which is amazing. And the whole chapter, pretty much, is about it tells the story of this amazing rescue. But the death of James takes a short sentence. And when you read Acts 12, you can finish it and get excited and say, isn't the Lord great? Look what happened. But what about James? Like he's an apostle. He's one of the chosen. He's one of the ones sent into the world. And the story is only beginning. And he gets arrested and his life is, is over. In one short sentence, Herod had him put to death with the sword. And then we move on. Well, James was the brother of John. And Jesus' best friends were Peter, James, and John. So James was the best friend of Peter, too. So this is intensely personal. And James isn't a chosen apostle, but he's just killed. And that's the end of his story. And then, of course, there are 16 soldiers that get executed for their incompetence, except it's not their incompetence. Right? The angel blinded their eyes and waltzed Peter out, and they're held accountable. That's pretty difficult. And then, of course, <clears throat> there's King Herod at the end of the chapter, who's the villain at the beginning, and he dies. So there's lots of death in this chapter, and yet the focus seems to be on the, on the rescue of Peter. So it leads us to ask this significant question. How does that work? God's trying to do something in the world, and he uses people, and why is it that some people get to live and some people have to die? That's what I want to have in mind as we talk about our situation in Panama. So we got some maps here. Um, you might not wonder where Panama is, as I didn't necessarily years ago. 
So you see Panama there. It's the last country of uh, Central America, just before we connect with Colombia. And you think north-south, but Panama actually runs east-west. So Panama's there. Panama City's right in the middle of the country. Colombia is the northeastern, northwestern country of South America. So that little rectangle now, let's zoom in on that. So this is a little map. I hope you can... Okay, so Panama City there in the middle, or up in the upper left. And then you drive about an hour from Panama City, you get the small town of La Chorera, and then another 45 minutes, and you get to the little community of Chame, which is where Eleanor and I lived, where the mission school was, and we were teachers in the school. If you've ever heard of the, uh, the Pan American Highway, it runs from Alaska to the southern tip of South America, which sounds like a great voyage, except, or a great journey, except it's, it's hard to see, but right under Morti, I don't know if you can see the yellow line, that's the highway. And as it comes, do you see the number one there in the middle of the map? And then it said to Faye, and then it says uh, right here by the green circle, the top left corner of the green circle, that says Yavisa. That's where the highway ends. And then you have jungle. And you see the green here, and it says, if you can read it, the Darien National Park. So that whole part of the, uh, the jungle is called the Darien Gap, because it's the gap that separates the highway where it ends in Panama and begins again in Colombia. So if you remember my story from uh, missiology, we visited a tribal group in Morti called the Kuna people, and they live all along the coast and in the jungle, and they also live in the village of Pucaro, which is in the Darien Gap, so no road access there whatsoever. So we arrived in Panama, and uh, one of the first people we met were Dave and Nancy Mankins, and uh, they're in the middle there, and Dave was on the leadership committee. And uh, he said, you're, in, you're coming to Panama for a year. You've got to visit Pucaro. You've got to meet the Kuna people. You've got to see what the Lord is doing there. And, um, and then they had co-workers, Rick and Patty Tenenoff, who were also living, oh, oh yeah, okay, that's fine, yeah, um, living in the village. Uh, so Dave is about 43, Dave and Nancy, early 40s. Rick and Patty, at this point, were in their early, thick, or sorry, in their mid-30s. They had three kids, Dora was seven years old, and she was in grade two at the school where we taught. And then her two little siblings, Connie and Lee. So Dora was seven, and she was in grade two. So they're living in the village. And then we met this couple, Mark and Tanya Rich. And when we arrived in Panama, they were still in Chame. Uh, they'd been appointed to join that team. And in September, let me just get my, my script here right. Oh, yeah, so they joined... They joined the team as well. So these three couples, Dave and Nancy, who were in their 40s, Rick and Patty in their 30s, Mark and Tanya are only married three years, and their girls were two years and 10 months. Okay? So let's go to the next slide. So these were times of, of a lot of conflict in Colombia back then. There was uh, civil unrest in Colombia, and there was a group called the FARC, FARC, which is the English acronym for the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, whose objective was to overthrow the government. And there was a lot of... Um, yeah, I want to make sure I'm sequencing here right. So at that time, one of the things they did is they kidnapped people, because there's a lot of money to be made in kidnapping. You kidnap someone, a business executive, and then you ransom them for a million or two dollars, and then you take that two million dollars and you buy equipment. You buy boats, you buy vehicles, you buy guns, and then if you need more money, you kidnap someone. So at that time, there was about a thousand kidnappings a year. That's three a day in Colombia, mostly in the capital cities of Bogota and also the city of Medellin. But they also went beyond that. 
So here's the timeline. July 1992, Ellen and I arrived in Panama as a young couple teaching in the school. That was July. Uh, in September 1992, Mark and Tanya, with their little girls, moved into the village. This is what they've been training for all these years, to be missionaries there. Three months later, in December, we had our field conference, when all the missionaries come out from where they're working, out to a central location, and we fellowship together. We hear their reports about what the Lord is doing. We just rest, and we just enjoy a really good year, sort of a good week. And that was at that time that we, that we met Rick and Patty. So this is where we um, got to know them more and developed good friendships with them and so on. After the conference, everyone went back to their homes. The kids went with their parents back to the jungle and that sort of thing. And then in January, school started again. <clears throat> so January 31. So Ellen and I got to Panama in the summer of 92. The following January, 1931. Sorry, January 31, 1993. 100 armed guerrillas swarmed the village of Pucaro. And, uh, and raided the homes. So they entered the three homes at the same time, maybe 10 or 15 people with machine guns, uh, forced the men on the ground, tied their hands, and then raided the houses, looking for computers, looking for money, looking for whatever. Now Dave and, Dave and Nancy's kids, who were 18 and 20, were away, but the other couples had their little kids with them, and this house was raided and so on. It took about five minutes, and it was extremely intense and somewhat violent, and um, they said to the wives, pack a few days' clothing for your men, for your husbands. Uh, and I'm not even sure that the men had a chance to kiss their wives goodbye, and then they were gone and into the darkness of the night in the jungle. Um, just like that, just like that, out of the blue. So some of the Kuna believers came and stayed with the, the ladies and their kids for the rest of the night for their safety. And then first thing in the morning when the sun rose, they got onto the river and made their way to Yavisa, where the highway is, and they called our office so we were teaching in the school Monday, February the 1st, and then we heard word that Dave and Mark and Rick had been kidnapped, <clears throat> excuse me, by gunpoint and carted away into the jungle. So the days following that were characterized by high tension as the guerrillas were calling the mission and yelling and screaming and saying, ransom, ransom, $5 million, we're going to kill them, we're going to kill them, hanging up. And uh, at the receiving end, our mission leadership I mean, what, what could they do? You, you can hardly say anything, and it's just, it's just, like, it's just tense. Um, missionaries from all the other villages in the, mission, in the Panama that were church planting, they were evacuated to the cities, to Panama City or to Chame, the village there. And Ethnos um, Panama was in upheaval, complete upheaval. Leadership moved to the city to deal with the crisis, and for the next few months, we hardly saw them. And everything, the only thing that was on our minds was the rescue of these men, the rescue of these men. And in fact, the, the, um, the ministries and the dynamics of ethnos in Panama was never, never the same. So in this complex story, there's, there's dynamics there. There's political elements where the FARC wants to overthrow the government of Colombia. Uh, ransom is $5 million, but we have a policy of not paying ransom because all that you do when you pay ransom is you just... You just uh, spur the cycle on. And we want people to understand that you kidnap a missionary, there's no money in that. That was the message. And missionaries had to sign off on that and recognize that if they were kidnapped, they wouldn't be ransomed. So think about it. You're a revolutionary force in Colombia, and you remember the gap, the Dadian gap? Where there's just jungle, and you're thinking, okay, here's three American couples living close to the Colombian border in the jungle. 
They've got computers. They've got radios. Like, what in the world are they doing? They're obviously government agents, CIA operatives, and we need to get them. Of course, there's no understanding of the love of Christ. These are missionaries. Missionaries, that's just a front for their CIA activity. So there's all these political dynamics there. There's also spiritual dynamics because God's word had come to the Kuna people from the time of, the God, from the time of Christ and the apostles through the centuries around the world, now into the jungles of Panama, and the Kuna people were, were being taught and getting saved. Um, the Bible was being translated. Mark and Tanya, younger missionaries coming to the field to help the work. And that's just the Kuna. That was happening in the other five indigenous languages as well. So exciting things were happening for the church in Panama. But then everything ground to a halt, and ministry was done remotely from Chame, the village, or Panama City, the capital. It's hard to do Bible translations from a distance because you always want to be talking with people and checking language. It's hard to do discipleship from a distance. It's hard to do Bible teaching. So the missionaries were doing things like preparing lessons for the day when they could go back in. Um, and it was a year later, actually, that the missionaries were starting to make day trips back into the village, like unannounced, so that there would be no warning and, and they couldn't be kidnapped and that sort of thing. So political elements, spiritual elements, and then personal elements. The, of course, the men were kidnapped, but what about the safety of the wives and the kids? So the men were kidnapped on Sunday night. Excuse me. Every year... In that town of Chorera, so you saw them out Panama City, and then Chorera, and then Chame. So in Chorera, they had a big fair. Uh, games, rides, food, and that sort of stuff. And the school always had a school trip to Chorera for the fair. And Eleanor and I were looking forward to it because we heard a lot about it. And little Dora, in grade two, wanted to go. And here's her mom in, Ch in Panama City, not wanting to let her kids out of her sight. She had the three kids, remember? But Dora wanted to go. Dora wanted to go. So she said, okay, Dora can go as long as she is constantly supervised. So the school principal asked Eleanor and me to be her guardian. So uh, Dora in grade two and her friend Eliza, we went on rides and so on. And we just watched them like a hot. We did not enjoy the night, Eleanor and I, um, because we were so concerned for this little girl. But she had fun, grade two. And, um, and then when we went back to Chame, she, with her mom, went back to Panama City, or went back to Panama City with her mom, and then in the next couple of days, all three women and their kids, they went back to the U.S., and we did not see them for years. Okay, so political, spiritual, personal elements. Then there's also elements of faith and doubt. Because we had great faith that God could deliver them. So here's a good story. So this is an old book, God of the Controls. Now there's a new version called When Things, Things Seem Impossible. Uh, Columbia, 1985. Guerrillas, uh, again, ambushed a missionary team in a village, and they actually seized the mission airplane that was there. The pilot was there, and they, they seized the airplane, and they forced the pilot to fly to another location and then another location, and they landed in an airstrip, you know, cut out of the jungle, uh, and then pushed the airplane down a path 200 meters into the bush. And here's this missionary all by himself, this missionary pilot named Paul. So after a few weeks, he starts sensing that the Lord is calling him to escape. He's like, Lord, how can I escape? How can, first of all, I can't go anywhere except with the airplane. And yeah, take the airplane. So by his own wits, by Lord's grace, he had an extra key that he had hidden in his shoe. Anyway, so the night comes and he feels like the Lord wants him to escape. It's a long story. It's a, long story. It's a great story. He slips out of his hammock 
walks 700 meters down the path to where the airplane is in the dark. This is jungle darkness, 700 meters, and he can't find the airplane, and then he discovers that they've covered it with, with palm leaves and branches and stuff. And he's like, oh my goodness. So then he starts peeling it off. And um, anyway, he gets the airplane uncovered. He pushes it out. He starts the engine. He takes it down that little path. Fog rolls in. So the short story is he actually takes off in the darkness and in the fog and flies out. He's got 90 minutes of fuel. He's asked the Lord to wake him at 5 o'clock in the morning. It's 2 o'clock in the morning. So he actually lands the airplane in the darkness, in the fog, without fuel, in a pasture. And when the sun rises, he's 50, 50 feet, like 20 meters from a swamp. Amazing story. But that's Colombia, 1985. We're back in Panama, 1993. And we're excited about the story that we're going to hear about our missionary friends. Um, okay, so... Much prayer. In, our, in Chame and around the world, people were praying for Mark, Dave, and Rick. We had weekly prayer meetings, and my wife, Eleanor, at the school bulletin board, she put a picture of the family, and every day she, put a, she cut out a flower out of construction paper uh, for every day that they were kidnapped. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 17, 18, 19, 28, 29, 30, a whole month, you know, then two months, and three months, and six, and nine, and 17. And every night we're praying that the Lord will rescue them. So we have faith, but now we're starting to doubt. Like, what, what are we asking the Lord for? What is he going to do? How is this all going to work out? So the story continues. The short of it is that in 1994, Eleanor and I left Panama 17 months after the kidnapping, and we could hardly believe that this was still going on. We came back to Canada. We continued to pray, but news was scant. The families knew everything, but we didn't. And the little girls grew up, the little kids grew up, Chad and Sarah Mankins were in their 20s. They got married without their dads. So look at this. 2001, the U.S. State Department issues this. Today marks the eighth anniversary of the kidnapping of our fellow U.S. citizens, so on and so on. The last line of that first paragraph, the return of these men remains a high priority for the U.S. government. We're committed to working with the families and the mission and the government to resolve this kidnapping says New Tribes Mission. New Tribes Mission is now called Ethnos. So eight years later, we're still wondering, what's the story? What's happening to these guys? And then, 2000 and, uh, September 1st, 2001, so this is just before 9-11, so eight months after <clears throat> January, here's an article from Christianity Today. Mission has concluded, based on multiple guerrilla testimonies, that the three American missionaries kidnapped eight years ago were shot by their captors three years later, as Colombian troops closed in. So we're back in Canada, and this is eight years later, and we've been praying and praying, and we find out they were killed like five years ago, and we didn't know, and we're still praying for their release. Like, that's really hard. And we know that the families knew more, but slowly the families came to understand that they were probably not coming back, and then the word was out that they had been killed. So here's a blog from... Um, a blog of Mark's parents, and this is 2010, so the story is still unfolding. And they write this, we eventually learned that the men, the three hostages, had won several of their guards to the Lord, these gorillas in the jungle. I mean, who's going to reach them? The, the Lord has missionaries kidnapped and brought into their camp. And they were indeed faithful to Christ to the end, even though their Bibles were confiscated and burned. Their lives were not easy during their three years in captivity. Finally, the order came to kill them. They were made to dig their own graves. 
And they sang hymns, because that's the, the gorillas told that story. So imagine that, digging your grave with your friends, and thinking, thinking of your wife, thinking of your kids, and then they get shot, and, and no one even knows where they are. And then their testimony is this, as parents, we certainly do not understand God's ways, but we know that being faithful to him and his calling and his word is the best way to live. We praise the Lord that Mark is with him, his family is well cared for, our precious granddaughters are both in college and desiring to serve the Lord. So kids, they grow up without their dad and they grow up and they want to love the Lord. And then a couple years later, Tanya writes this. As the new week starts, I'm remembering that Thursday will mark the 20th year since the kidnapping. Who would have ever imagined all that's happened because of this life-changing event? I'm ever so aware that God is the one in control. He knows and cares about each of us, what we're going through. And then she says this, the pain and the fear that started that night and lasted for so many years is unbearable to think about at times. But most of the time, I'm simply overwhelmed by God's love and care for each one of us. I encountered serious grief, pain, and doubt over the years, but I also saw God's faithfulness over and over. The wives got married again, and... uh, they're serving the Lord, and the kids have served the Lord. But I want to tell you a story about grief. Grief is a strange thing. So we said goodbye to Dora when she was in grade two. Haven't seen her for years. So years later, Eleanor and I are working in the office of Ethnos, and there's a young Canadian guy named Derek Grant from Hamilton. He's a church planting in uh, Indonesia. So because he's Canadian, we're keeping track of him, and he has a co-worker named Jonathan, Jonathan Porch, an American guy. Just came from uh, BI, the Ethnos BI, where uh, Brandon and Austin were. Uh, so he's in Indonesia, but he's corresponding with a girl, and they're getting married. So he comes back to the U.S. to get married to a girl named Dora Tedinoff. <clears throat> Great. Praise the Lord. Um, Derek, years later, comes back to Canada, meets the daughter of my coworker, and they get married. And so because they're our friends, I go to the wedding. But Ellen and I go to the wedding. We get to the wedding late. It's just about to start. So we slip into, like, the second last row. And being me, I'm thinking, there's a guy sitting behind me by himself. So I thought, he's obviously here because he knows someone. So I turn around, and uh, I say, hi, I'm Frank Vandermulen. I'm a friend of Derek's. What brings you here today? Like, who, are you, who do you know? And he says, oh, I'm, uh, I'm a friend of Derek's. I'm Jonathan Porsche. I said, oh, Jonathan. He said, yeah, I'm here with my wife. She's nursing. Okay. And um, the piano starts. So I turn around to face the front, and I'm just thinking, Jonathan Porch. I'm thinking, where's Jonathan Porch? Oh, yeah, Derek's roommate, or his, his partner. Oh, yeah, he... Very Dora. And then out of the corner, I hear a shuffle, and I turn around, and here's this woman with a baby. She sits down. I'm thinking it's Dora. Oh, my goodness. And I turn around to say hi to Dora, and I just turn around and say, Dora, it's Frank and Alan Vandermulen. And the grief, because it's like, we haven't talked to each other in 10 years more. And now she's here with a baby, and she's a missionary. And I'm just starting to cry and cry, and she's crying, and Ellen starts crying, and then the bridesmaids come out. <laughs> and you're not supposed to cry at a wedding, or people cry at a wedding, but they don't cry when the first bridesmaid enters the room. <laughs> and so we're sitting at the back, and everyone turns around to see the bridesmaids, and she comes around the corner, and here's two couples, like, gushing tears. And it was so embarrassing, it was so funny, but it was so not funny, and there was just this conflicting emotions. Um, 
But here's, here's Dora. She's grown up. She's a woman, and she's, she's got a beautiful kid, and she's serving the Lord. And I was just so overwhelmed by that. So let's just conclude the story. What's the story of Acts 12? What's Acts 12 all about? What's the book of Acts all about? First opening verses of Acts 12, Jesus is preaching the kingdom. The last verse of Acts 28 says Paul's in Rome and he's preaching and proclaiming the kingdom. So it's the story of the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom. Chapter 12 begins with Herod. He wants to persecute the church. But the chapter ends and Herod's dead. And then we read in, if you've got your Bibles open, okay, verse 23, Herod dies, verse 24, but the word of God continues to increase and spread. And then Barnabas and Saul. Here's a reference to Barnabas and Saul. They're not even factors in the story, but they're mentioned in the last verse of chapter 11. Now they're in the last verse of chapter 12, and you know the story of Saul and Barnabas, how they become missionaries around the Mediterranean Sea and all that. So this is the theme of the book of Acts. Um, often the concluding words to a narrative are about the word increasing, or the believers had great boldness, or the church continued to grow. And that's the story of the book of Acts. And the reality is sometimes people get arrested and others don't. And sometimes people get killed and others don't. Sometimes they get rescued and others don't. God can intervene supernaturally, but sometimes he doesn't. Uh, it's his prerogative. God will build his church. Christ will build his church. And that's the story of the book of Acts. And God will build his church. That's his responsibility. And our responsibility is simply to say, okay, God, what part do you want me to play? And give me grace for the things that come my way. Our call is to be faithful and to persevere. And if you are martyred, you need to persevere and be faithful to the end. And if you live your life one day at a time till you're old and die, you still have to persevere. So we just have to persevere through the things that God sends our way. And may God give us the grace to do that. So who's the hero? Is it the men who were killed? Or is it the women and the little kids who grew up to serve the Lord despite all that happened? May God give us the grace to, to follow their example. Let's pray. Lord, just thank you so much for your grace to these families. And I think of these young students, Lord, they've got such heart and such love for you. They don't know what the future holds, but care for them, lead them, and guide them, Lord, that we might be faithful in the power of the Spirit to the call of Christ in our lives. In his name we pray, amen.